Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Astros Baseball. My guest today is Jacob Kornhauser. He is the author of The Cup of Coffee Club. Jacob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So let's talk a little bit about your baseball background before we get started talking about your book. When did you start playing baseball? So just tell us a little bit about where you're from and your, you know, your connection with baseball. Yeah, I have a pretty conventional baseball upbringing, I guess you could say. Um, I grew up in Crystal Lake, Illinois, which is a suburb about 45 minutes outside of Chicago. Um, you know, played Little League, um, all that sort of stuff. Kind of fell in love with the game, watching it. Uh, talking about it, writing about it, playing it. Um, so then I kind of rose through the ranks, played travel ball, uh, you know, all the way up through high school, um, and then still played kind of for fun and doing, you know, softball leagues and, and all that sort of stuff through college and, and still do that um, today, even though can't do that with COVID uh, right now. So that's kind of been a downer. Um, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people like that who want to get out and play but can't. But yeah, just someone who, like I said, has had a passion kind of all around baseball in terms of uh, playing it and writing about it and studying the game, you know, talking to different players who have played the game, active players, stuff like that. So it's just most of my life has been kind of front and center. Okay, is this the only book that you've written? And the other, I'm gonna. This will be a two-parter. Sorry, is this the only? Oh, so it is your only book. It is. Yeah, it's my first book. Um, I have actually another one that is going to be coming out either late this year, or early next year. But this is the first one. Okay, so my, I guess the the second part of that two-part question is, where did you get the idea to write this book? Like, what was your motivation? Yeah, I've always wanted to write a baseball book, but I never found a subject or a topic that kind of warranted it, I guess you could say. Something that, you know, had enough depth to it that you could actually fill out an entire book with it. Um, And so I wasn't really consciously trying to think of a baseball book idea, but I was just uh, talking with a a friend and colleague of mine a few years ago. Um, We just had a random baseball conversation and then I brought up the idea of kind of these one game players you know stemming from the whole idea of Moonlight Graham whose career was um, kind of immortalized in Field of Dreams everyone uh, pretty much knows his story at least as it's told um, in that movie and so then we both kind of looked at each other as I mentioned this one game player thing thinking you know this is kind of a cool idea Um, so I started researching it to see if there was enough if there were enough players who had only played one game to kind of be able to interview some of them 
tell their stories, um, or if there weren't enough, or if it wasn't as rare as I expected it to be. Um, and as it turned out, it was kind of in that sweet spot where it was pretty rare, but not so rare that there was no one that I could talk to. So then once I got on that um, sort of line of thought, I just started researching most of the guys who are still alive. Um, obviously, I wanted to center the book around guys I was able to speak with and talk to them about their careers. So from there, I got maybe a list of 30 guys that I thought were the most unique, you know, the coolest stories um, of, of the guys that, that I had looked up and who were still around. Um, started reaching out to a bunch of them, and I had hoped that, you know, of the 25 to 30 that I had on that list, that I'd be able to get around half. Um, and then we settled on 11. And so that's how we got kind of the 11 individual player chapters uh, of the book of me, me talking to 11 guys who played in just one game. That was going to be my next question. How many how many players did you cover? So you answered that one. But doing your research, how many different players only played one game that you found? Yeah, so there's roughly a thousand total, um, but it was very heavily skewed toward early baseball. You know, in the the late 1800s, early 1900s was where the majority of those guys were. Uh, in the last 50 years or so, there's only been a, around 150 uh, or so guys like that. So, you know, an average of about three a year. And it, it differs. Some years there's none. Some years there's you know, a handful, seven or eight. Um, and so just looking into everyone's story, not everyone had a super unique story outside of that one game. So I really wanted to drill in on the guys who even outside of their just one game experience had um you know, something, something unique about their story that was worth telling. Um, so yeah, that's how we got to the 11, uh, individual player stories. And then there's a bunch of other guys, uh, who are mentioned in the book, kind of in the opening chapter that lays out the idea for the book and, and why these guys are so unique and why we should appreciate their stories. You know, I talk about John Pachorek, who a lot of Astros fans are probably familiar with, um, had one of the most successful one game careers ever, uh, in a late season game against the Mets, he went three for three with two walks. You know, he reached five times out of five times, uh, had a bunch of injuries then that, that kind of derailed his career. But he's a very famous example um, of a one-game player. Um, and then actually at the end, there's some stories about some older guys uh, who have since passed away, who I wasn't able to talk to, but whose stories were, were so cool that I did feel that they should be included at least at the end to, to give people a little more flavor. So is, are the guys that you, the chapters, you said there's 11 chapters, are they in order timeline-wise? Yes, yeah, they're in chronological order. So we've got that opening chapter that, again, kind of tells of this idea of why these one-game players are unique and should sort of be celebrated and appreciated um, because they kind of offer a window into, you know, how fleeting baseball can be for a lot of people. Um, and so then from there, yes, we go chronologically. So our first player, Chuck Lindstrom, uh, he debuted in 1958 with the White Sox. Uh, his dad is in the Hall of Fame, Freddie Lindstrom. And then 2008 uh, is our most recent one. So it's 11 guys and they span 50 years. And we pretty much touch, you know, across that spectrum. Um, I'd say maybe four guys are since the 2000s. We've got a guy, in, uh, obviously, Lindstrom, who's 58. Um, we've got some in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so kind of tried to make sure that we, that we touched every era of baseball that we could. How hard was it to get a hold of these guys? Were they, uh, <laughs> were, were they very uh, eager to speak with you about this? 
Yeah, it was, it ranged, you know, it, it differed in terms of difficulty. Um, so Jeff Bannister uh, was the active manager of the Texas Rangers when uh, I spoke to him. And so that was the easiest one to set up, but the hardest one to kind of actually get on the books. Obviously, an active major league manager doesn't have very much free time during the season. So we kind of, during the all-star break a couple of years ago, were able to chat. Um, he was super gracious with his time and everything like that. So I was super appreciative to him. Um, you know, he didn't have to give as much time as he did. Uh, but then there were other guys like Ron Wright, um, you know, who played for the Mariners in the early 2000s, who I couldn't quite find how to get a hold of him. But I had seen, you know, he's working as a pharmacist now in Utah. And I called the pharmacy and like asked for him and then got his number that way. And that's kind of how we got in touch. So it was kind of a weird uh, a weird little maze to go through for some of the guys. Um, but none of them, I would say, were like super eager to talk. But I was also surprised by how few people I reached out to were reluctant to, to speak at all. I only had a few guys just, you know, outright say they didn't want to be a part of the book. So by and large, uh, the group that's in this book kind of reflects at least what I saw in terms of the majority of players who were willing to talk about their experience and, and kind of looked on, looked back, uh, a little more fondly than I expected when I was going into the project. Did you have to get their permission to write about them in the book or could you write about them anyways? Yeah, well, so all the guys uh, that are the individual chapters, um, I spoke to and, and did these extensive interviews and they knew that um, they were going to be included in the book. So yeah, all of them provided permission to, to kind of be included. And then any of the other guys that are mentioned, it's basically just, you know, anecdotal stories um kind of in the opening chapter or in later chapters um kind of that last one i mentioned with the guys who are no longer living it's still told through a lens of people who are either super familiar with their stories who ha or who had a direct connection to them um so it's still kind of a personal you know like second hand rather than third or fourth hand sort of you know just researched um so i thought that was important to do in terms of speaking to people who were either super familiar with the story or who, who had firsthand knowledge or who spoke to some of these players. How long did it take you to put this book together? Well, start to finish, the, the interview process spanned probably, I don't know, eight months, ten months, something like that. Um, once I had all the material and kind of was able to organize it, um, the first draft came together relatively quickly in terms of book writing standards, maybe five or six months. And then, you know, we went through a bunch of, of edits and, you know, kind of streamlining and trying to make sure that, that the themes we wanted to pop from, from these players and their unique stories really came out in the book as a whole, not just in the individual chapters. Um, so that was another several months. Um, and then by the time, you know, I found out um, I was getting a publishing deal, then it was a, a year after that that it actually got published. So all told in terms of kind of, from when I thought of it to when it got published was just a little under three years, probably about two and a half, three years. Okay. So in this book, when you talk about the individual players, are you mentioning their, uh, their road to get to that game, that one game, and then like the road to try to get back? Yes, yes, exactly. You nailed it. Um, it is exactly that. It's kind of the arc of how they got into baseball, their early life, you know, what drew them to baseball um, when they emerged as kind of a player that people thought could be a major league player or at least a professional. 
Um, and then it kind of goes through some of the circumstances they faced, you know, that might have contributed to them only playing in one game in terms of some foreshadowing that we then reflect on afterward. Um, obviously, uh, the story of the one game comes out, but that's really um, secondary because most of these guys, you know, their one game outside of a couple people, most of their stories are relatively similar, um, not with the success of them necessarily, because, you know, some guys have a great one game experience and some guys not so much. Mm-hmm. But we did want to have that whole arc to where we then tell the story of they either get sent down or they don't get put into a game again after that. Um, and then their kind of unique struggle to get back because it's almost like they're still just a career minor leaguer, but they have that one tiny little taste yeah. of major league experience. And so it's just a really, really unique lens to look at baseball through is through these guys who, you know, achieve something that almost none of us do in reaching the major leagues. But then at the end of the day, you know, like any of us would, they have the what ifs, they have the, you know, this went this way, this went that way. Maybe I play a few years in the major leagues, um, but they only had the one game. So it's kind of them trying to get back. And then also how in the years since they've sort of reckoned with um, their unique career and whether they're able to take, you know, more positive, out of the experience than negative. So for most of these guys, were they late year call-ups? I mean, what was the situation that caused them to only play one game? Were they just fill-ins for injury or? Yeah, it varies. Um, So that was what was interesting to me is that there's a lot of themes that pop out in terms of, you know, why certain guys didn't make it longer than they did um but in terms of individual players you know there's some who were super super young uh they assumed they had you know a decade career set up for them in the major leagues and then it just never panned out whether it was because of injury or timing or or different stuff like that you know organizational needs um that different teams had so some were injuries some were timing in terms of not getting another chance um you know barry larkin's brother stephen larkin is in the book he played one game um, he was called up at the end of the 1998 season and actually got to play a game with Barry, um, who's eight years older than him. So that was pretty cool because that was the only time that they had ever played on kind of a competitive sports team together because, you know, they were so far apart in age that they never were really able to do that before. Um, so he was more so called up. He was in lower level minor league. So that seemed more so a you know nod to, to Barry and being able to, to let him play with his brother and get his brother some of that experience because um, he had been through a lot too. Uh, Steven, he had a, a heart condition that almost kept him uh, from playing baseball when he was at the University of Texas. Um, so a lot of these guys, you know, it's just different different circumstances, but then they all face the same battle um, as they fall further and further away from being able to get back and kind of coming to that harsh realization that that one game was probably their only one. That's pretty interesting that you, that someone in the book that only played one game had a brother in Major League Baseball, and you said the other one had a Hall of Fame father? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty yes. interesting. So your book yeah. is already available, right? It is, it is. Yeah, at, uh, if you just search Cup of Coffee Club on Amazon, um, Indie Bound is another one I've been pointing people to, you know, to help uh, independent bookstores during the pandemic and stuff like that. You can basically find it um, anywhere you get your books, you know, barnesandnoble.com. There's a lot of different 
other sites. So um, if people have kind of their go-to book site, um, it should be there if you just search the Cup of Coffee Club. Okay, here's a question I probably should have asked you at the beginning, but why the name Cup of Coffee Club? Yeah, so the term Cup of Coffee has kind of referred to players who were only in professional sports long enough to have a cup of coffee, kind of a, a phrase to, to encompass, you know, just how short their careers were. It's not necessarily something to denote someone who only played in one game, but that's the way that I'm using it for the purposes of this book. Um, so it's just sort of this snappy sounding, I guess, name for this collection of players, all who share this same sort of dubious yet charming distinction um, of having played just one game. Is there any other stories you would like to share to try to entice some people to buy this book? Yeah, well, I, mean, I was going to say, uh, jumping off of the um, kind of sibling and father-son relationship with Hall of Famers, we actually also have uh, an Astros connection. We have a few Astros connections, but uh, Robin Yount's older brother, Larry Yount, was a pitcher for the Astros um, in the 70s. And so he had a very unique um, a very unique one game because he was super young. He was 22 years old, um, and he had just finished his one-week-long sort of um, Army training, you know, being uh, in the Army Reserves. And so he came to the Astros. That was right after he got called up. He's warming up in the bullpen. He's going to go in against the Braves. He's going to face, you know, Hank Aaron in kind of a, a murderer's row lineup that the Braves had back then. Wow. Um, and so then he gets inserted into the game, gets announced as as the uh, relief pitcher, but his arm is killing him, and he, he decides to, to remove himself before he even throws a pitch. You know, he's 22 years old. He assumes he's got his whole career ahead of him um, and stuff like that. And as it turns out, injuries, different other things, you know, underperforming, he ended up never getting back. And so he's actually the only player in Major League history to have a single appearance without throwing a pitch. Um, so he is kind of the embodiment of, of the cup of coffee club players because he got as close as you can get without actually, you know, kind of participating in a game. And then we follow his story through Robin, who was a couple years younger than him. Obviously he burst out of the scene as a teenager. Um, he kind of acted as Robin's agent, you know, befriended Bud Seeley, who he's still friends with to this day. Because uh, Bud was was the owner of the, the Brewers back then, and so he kind of negotiated contracts for Robin. Um, he became a super successful uh, real estate mogul, so to speak, um, in Phoenix. Uh, played a played a small part in the Diamondbacks ending up, um, you know, or I guess in Phoenix getting a major league baseball team, and the Diamondbacks coming to town. So his story is super unique and completely tied to the Astros because that was. That was a jersey he was wearing when he uh, should have pitched his one game, but ended up taking himself out. I can't imagine too many people not just going through that, just go through with it, you know, just. Right. Did he tell you why his arm was hurting? Is it because you said yeah. he was in the training? Yeah so the, yeah, so the Army Reserve, he wasn't allowed to, you know, bring any baseball equipment there. So he just, his arm was, was uh, not fresh and he hadn't been throwing, keeping it warm. Um, and so that was really the first time he'd thrown in over a week. And so it was just a case of, you know, not being warm and, and kind of his arm tightening up. And that was the thing, you know, you, in hindsight, you think like you should have just gutted your way through it, obviously. Um, but again, he 
was 22. Right. He figured he was going to, you know, be able to compete for a spot uh, in the bullpen at the very least, if not the rotation um, in the coming years. Uh, and then just the year after that, he got injured and that kind of slowed his performance. And after that, you know, you only get a strike or two in an organization in terms of, you know, if you have some type of negative performance like that. Um, and then unless you're a superstar player, you don't get too many second or third chances. So uh, it was just kind of a slippery slope for him and something that he probably hindsight being 2020, which is he had just gutted his way through, but you, it, it's easy to see, you know, why the decision was made in the moment for him trying to protect his own. Yeah. If he was 30 years old, I'm pretty sure he would have thrown. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what year was that? Uh, it was 1971. Oh, okay. That's the year I was born. Uh, <laughs> there you go. So you, you said there was another Astros player in the book. Yes. Yeah. Rafael Montalvo um, is the other player. Um, and he coincidentally actually pitched against the Braves as well. Mm. Um, his debut was in 1986. Um, so 15 years later, um, kind of some of the same circumstances. He actually, it's eerily similar in terms of, you know, when he came into the game and, and all that sort of stuff. The only difference is that he didn't get injured um, and didn't take himself out of the game. So he actually was able to go through with it. Um, so he pitched the eighth inning, you know, didn't face anyone of huge acclaim. You know, Hank Aaron obviously had, had long been retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph Garr, long retired by then. So um, he pitched uh, and gave up a triple, got two other guys out, um, but then he unfortunately came in for the ninth inning um, and then walked two guys and then was relieved, and then uh, one of the players ended up coming around to score. So for all of his effort in terms of what seemed like a pretty good outing, he ended up with a career ERA of nine. Um, and so Rafi's an interesting guy, too, because he crossed the picket line um, during the players' strike, and so he was wanting to be a replacement player for the Dodgers back uh when there was a strike and, you know, the owners were wanting to sign replacement players to be able to play the 1995 season when the players still hadn't come to an agreement um, with the owners. And so he's actually completely bashed in uh, a Mike Piazza book. You know, Mike Piazza totally, you know, kind of takes him to the woodshed and criticizes him and and some other guys for crossing Mm -hmm. the picket line and saying they're over the hill and all that sort of stuff. Um, So that was kind of an interesting chapter in his career. He was older then, you know, he's in his thirties and, uh, just trying to you know get back to the major leagues and, and make sure that that wasn't his only game. But, of course, uh, they came to an agreement before uh, the replacement players were needed. So it did remain his one game. But he stayed in baseball. You know, he ended up playing in the Mexican League for a really long time. He's pretty well known there. Um, and even as lately as last season, he was still coaching in the Mexican League. So uh, he definitely has not been able to keep himself out of baseball, which is a pretty common thing, too, amongst these guys. There, there's some that have been able to remove themselves, but most of them, at least in one way or another, have stayed involved in the game. So why did he? Why was he unable to make it back to the major leagues? Did he, did another, he try to explain yeah, that? It was another case uh, of injuries and timing, and when you're not basically a superstar player, you're only giving, given so many times where you get injured and then you underperform probably because you're pushing yourself back uh, too soon, trying to, you know, impress the front office. Um, and then it's really just kind of this snowball effect of injuries, underperformance, maybe because of the injuries, the psychological factors um, and other things, you know, other guys in the, in the book, 
weren't necessarily all injuries. A lot of it was psychological too, but the injury aspect was definitely one that, that popped out to me as a theme with a lot of these guys in terms of why they didn't get a second chance. So he pitched that one inning, and then they just sent him back down? Yeah, eventually. So he wasn't he wasn't used very often. I mean, obviously he was only uh, yeah. pitched in one game, but he had been on the roster for a little bit. Um, and then that's something you'll see with these guys too is they might be up in the major leagues for a month or, you know, two, three weeks, but they only get into one game. And there's some guys who, you know, we don't really have any way of knowing. There's some guys who probably were in their situation, were on the major league roster two, three weeks, and then just didn't get into a game at all. So uh, a lot of these guys, you know, they were up a few weeks, they played in one game, and then for whatever reason or another, whether it be, you know, a guy in the major league roster was injured and he comes back, um, in one case, there was a guy that was, um, I believe his wife had a child, and so he was away from the team for a week or two. Um, and so then that's how one of the Cup of Coffee players got his chance, and then he was sent down once the guy came back. Um, so it's just a variety of factors in terms of what gets them sent down, but in most cases, it's kind of, they just linger, don't get that second, third, fourth game, uh, and then they get sent down just because there's not room on the roster for them anymore. You were saying earlier that part of the reason they can't get back up there is psychological. So if they yes. go up there and give up a triple and do what this guy did, um, does it just do they start doubting themselves? Is that what? Yeah, you're- I don't know if I don't know if it's individual performance in their one game that affects them so much. I think it's the mountain that they then have to climb for a second time. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, you know, it yeah. takes so much. If you're just a fringe Major League Baseball player, which obviously all the guys that just get one game, they're, they're very fringe uh, Major League Baseball players. There's a quote in the book um, from a former scouting director talking about, you know, there are 200 players basically that are competing for 100 spots. You know, there's only one Randy Johnson. There's only one David Cohn. Um, and then there's 200 other guys that are basically competing for 100 other spots. And the, the differences in talent between all those guys might not be that different um so it's a lot of different factors that kind of are at play in terms of you getting to the major leagues and so once you climb that mountain and then you're sent all the way back down even if it's triple a and you know you're still just one call away from major leagues psychologically that wears on you um and you you tend to lose some confidence you know for most of these guys um at least anecdotally from looking at their performances after they were sent back down most of them underachieved based on, you know, what they had been doing for the last few years. So you've got to just think it was some lingering disappointment and the stress of trying to get back to the major leagues now for a, a second time, uh, when in most of their cases, you know, they didn't do enough the first time around to guarantee that they would ever get another call. I know for the Astros, we have we have two really good third basemen down in the minors, and they are totally blocked by uh, Alex Bregman. And even if you move Bregman to shortstop, they're blocked by Carlos Correa or they're blocked by Altuve. You know, you have Springer. I mean, there's just – there. we might have some really good players, but just like you're talking about, they, they don't have a chance until these guys are gone unless, you know, maybe for a week, you know, they, they get called up for a birth of a kid or anything. But let me ask you this. Uh, in your research, um, are most of the 
cup of coffee players, pitchers, the majority of them, or is it just pretty split up? Uh, overall, I don't know the exact numbers. Overall, just from looking at them, I believe there are more pitchers than hitters in the book. Um, off the top of my head, there are more hitters than pitchers for sure. Um, I think we maybe had two or three pitchers and the rest are hitters. I could be wrong. Um, so I tried to focus on hitters more so. I guess their stories, just for what I was looking for, ended up being better. That wasn't a uh, kind of concerted effort on my part, I guess. Um, but yeah, overall, I think there have been more pitchers. I think it's easier um, to end up just getting in one game uh, as a pitcher than it is as a hitter, even though you know some of these guys got pinch hit appearances and that's how they got their one game. So it'd be kind of similar to a, to a bullpen appearance sort of scenario. Um, but touching back on what you were mentioning about uh, the Astros and Bregman blocking guys at third base, that was something I found was hugely important in terms of these guys' careers too, uh, um, is just organizational depth and you know where that depth is and the timing of your career and, and where you are in an organization. Because I gave an example in the opening chapter comparing these two guys. You have Chase Lambin, who was a career minor leaguer. He played 13 years in the minors, never got called up to the major leagues. And then you have this guy, Ronnie Cedeno, who played for the Cubs. He played for a ton of different teams. Uh, I remember playing for the Cubs growing up. Um, and so Ronnie Cedeno ended up having a 10-year career, played for, you know, a handful, seven, eight teams. And his career war was negative 1.6. So theoretically, you know, a replacement-level player was actually more valuable you know, uh, over a decade span. And then you have Chase Landon. These two guys kind of came up in the minor leagues at the same time. Uh, but he was blocked. He was in the Mets organization, right, as Jose Reyes and David Wright were coming up. Um, so he obviously had no way that he was going to get called up, um, you know, as kind of a left-sided infielder. Um, so unless he was traded or whatever, while he was still in his quote-unquote prime, he was never going to get called up. Ronnie Cedeno, on the other hand, comes up in the Cubs organization. They didn't have any depth on the left side of the infield. So he gets a chance that Landon didn't, you know, those guys – are in opposite organizations. Maybe Lambin cracks it with the Cubs and, and has a long career. So I thought it was important to highlight those two as they came up at the same time and were afforded completely different careers uh, just based on, you know, organizational depth and the timing of how their careers played out. And that was really pounding home the point of a lot of what makes a major league baseball player's career, if you're not a star player, is timing and, and things that are out of your control. And it's kind of sad to think of it that way but it's also kind of interesting to to understand that that these guys' careers are in some ways until they establish themselves out of their hands and they're completely subject to kind of things that aren't fully in their control all right so it sounds like a very interesting book uh i'd like to thank you for coming on and sharing your story uh, let everybody know where they can find you. Tell me a little bit about your website and uh, different things where they can find the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so in terms of where you can find the book, as I mentioned, you know, Amazon, IndieBound, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Bookstork I know has it. So really anywhere uh, that you get your, your books, you should be able to search for it and find it, hopefully. Um, Twitter is where I'm most active, just firing off different baseball content and that sort of stuff. Um, and I can be found at Corn Sports, so K-O-R-N Sports, um, kind of like my last name. Uh, and then the, the website is BaseballCoffeeClub.com. And basically on there, there's just a bunch of kind of shorter snippets 
uh, of other cup of coffee club player stories. There's probably about 50 other stories on there. If you want to check out, you know what it's all about. These aren't guys that I spoke to as, as I did for the book. And they're certainly not as in depth of stories uh, as there are in the book. Um, but a lot of them are super, super interesting and, and might give you a better idea of kind of the arc of these players' careers and kind of what I'm going for with the book. So if you're still on the fence and sort of curious about a uh, cup of coffee club, as a concept and stuff like that, I'd encourage you to, to jump over there and, and read some of those stories and see if they interest you. So do you have plans for another book? Yes. So in terms of this book, a question I get asked a lot is if I'm going to do a second volume, which I have not ruled out, but it's definitely not on you know my immediate plans. But there's, there's enough other players that um, – I would be able to put one together um, if I decide to uh, in the future of, you know, different players, but I want to take a sort of different approach, different um, hook other than just the one game player. So I'd have to to think on that, but yeah, my, my brother and I actually co-wrote a book that is supposed to come out hopefully late this year or early next year. And that's more of a single narrative rather than these, you know, individual chapters or individual stories. Um, It's a single narrative about, uh, a baseball player who ended up playing at Oregon State University, so it's kind of centered on college baseball scene, but it's it's more of like a family drama sort of story uh, that happens to do with baseball rather than, you know, this book is very centered on baseball. It's got some really transferable ideas to life, uh, but not to the degree that this, this forthcoming book will have in terms of just being able to... Um, I guess, empathize with a very human story. Okay, Jacob. Once again, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you coming on. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.